0: Good morning, glad to be here with you again today. Welcome back to this series that we've been in calling Confronting Christianity. And again, this is a series that we're basing on a book by Rebecca McLaughlin of the same title where we examine some of the hardest questions that Christians are being asked in our current cultural moment. And the question that we're talking about this morning is, maybe the biggest stumbling block for most people who are trying to wrestle through their faith and think about following Jesus and what it looks like. And so let's talk about this. Here's what the question is. How can a loving God allow so much suffering? You ever think about this? Let's reframe it a couple different ways. If God is real why is there so much pain in the world? If God is powerful, why is there so much sorrow in the world? And this is what is traditionally known as the problem of evil. And let me just give you a little bit of the logic behind a question like this. It goes something like this. If God is all loving and all powerful, then there shouldn't be evil and suffering in the world. There is evil and suffering in the world. All you have to do is turn on the news and you see it. All you have to do is examine your own life and you can feel it. Therefore, God is either not loving because he has the power to stop evil, but doesn't, or God is not powerful, uh, or God is not all powerful because he wants to stop evil, but he can't. So that's kind of the logic behind this question that we're asking here this morning, this fundamental issue of this perceived inconsistency between the goodness of God and the experience of human suffering. Why is there so much pain in the world if God is good? And I want to say right here at the very beginning that this question is not primarily academic or apologetic for most people. It's it's, it's deeply personal, isn't it? I mean, this is a personal Question: Suffering to one degree or another touches every single human being on this planet. In this room, and I know many of your stories, uh, there are people who have uh, experienced suffering that has nearly broken them. In this room, there are people who have experienced suffering that has caused them to doubt God or question their faith. There's chronic illness. There's emergency surgery. There's cancer there's storm damage, there's losses of jobs, there's divorce, struggling children, miscarriage, death, pain, and suffering touches every single human being. And so this is not just an academic exercise. This is a deeply personal issue for every single one of us here this morning. I I, I remember... Katie and I were, were new parents, the first time we really experienced something that I would consider pain in our lives. We've had various things at different points, but in our marriage, early on, we had a, our firstborn child, four weeks old, Caleb Scott Wilson, this is him, the day he was born, little baby Mohawk. And uh, Caleb, we were, we were in awe, like we loved having this baby boy, he changed our life. Um, He was amazing and about four weeks into his life we were in Branson on a family trip Um, We were we were uh, hanging out with family and then at night We tried to put Caleb down and he started screaming and writhing and And we couldn't console him, and it got so bad that we we, we actually had to leave the condo we were staying in and drive back to Northwest Arkansas at 3 a.m. to get back here so we could take him to the hospital the next morning, because we could tell he was in so much pain. And we took him into the doctor, and as soon as the doctor saw him, they admitted him to the hospital, um, because Caleb was just struggling. And then Uh, They did this battery of tests. The first bottle Caleb ever had was a barium swallow so that they could see his digestive tract and take x-rays. And after several different pediatricians and multiple radiologists looked at the results, they said, Caleb has a disease called Hirschsprungs, which means part of his bowel is not working, and we can't treat him here. We, We need to put him on a helicopter and fly him to Little Rock, and we don't have a seat for either of you. We'll see you when we get there. And I remember Katie and I drove to Little Rock like bats out of hell or whatever. And, and we, we drove we, we, we drove and we got there and we, we, we walk into the ER at Children's Hospital in Little Rock and we saw our four-week-old son hooked up to an IV with morphine being pumped into him. And uh, it, it was in that moment that I, I walked out into the hallway and I had one of those like moments you see in a movie where your knees buckle, you kind of walk outside. And I remember praying, God... I don't know if I'm like you. I, I can't do what you do. God, don't take my son away from me. And then we were in the hospital for five days, and, and the story has, a, has a, a pretty powerful ending for our family. But the point is, when we were in it, suffering was, was very real. It was right on the tips of our fingers. It was right on the edge of our hearts. Uh, we felt it. It was deeply personal. What, what are those moments for you? What are the moments of pain and suffering and fear where you cry out, why, God, or how long, oh, Lord? The, the moments that stir up something inside of you about the goodness of God or the justice of God in your life. And really the question is, how can a loving God allow me to suffer or my kids or my family? If God really loved me, why is he allowing me to go through this, And so this morning, as we think about suffering, I have an outline we're going to breeze through, and then we have a testimony that we're going to end with today. And the outline goes something like this. Number one, we're going to start with some perspectives on suffering. Like what are the glasses or the lenses or the worldviews that we look through and think about and try to understand what suffering is? I'm going to give you just a few of them. Number two, we're going to look at the purpose of suffering. Is there a purpose to suffering? Uh, what is it? What, what might God be doing through this thing that seems so harmful or painful to us? And then the lastly, the promise of suffering. What, what hope do we have as Christians in light of the pain and suffering in our world? That is the outline today. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. This is a passage that in the, this past year has been extremely meaningful to me. Uh, we went through a lot in this past year as a family as well. I had multiple kidney surgeries. I, they discovered a birth defect. and it, it, was, it was a hard year. And I had multiple people write this verse out or text it to me. And I clung to it in the, in the middle of some suffering that we went through. So I want to start here and then we'll go into our outline this morning. Here's what it says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is also at work. Therefore, do not what? Lose heart. It's easy to lose heart in pain, isn't it? It's easy for our hearts to, to become tired and weary. Do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, so we fix our eyes, not what is seen, but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is God's word to us, amen? Okay. Let's think about perspectives on suffering. There is no worldview that denies suffering exists. Uh, You'd have to kind of close your eyes and put your fingers in your ears go la, 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 to to really uh, look at the world and deny that there is pain and suffering in this place. But there are different ways of understanding pain and suffering. Let me give you just three that I think are relevant to us in our culture, in our moment. The first is what we're going to call a moralist. And the moralist view is that suffering comes as a result of our decisions or our behavior either in this life or a previous life. Moralists believe that people suffer, uh, quote, because they're getting what was coming to them that bad circumstances are intended to be a wake-up call or a siren to to, to cause us to reevaluate how we're living and to change the way we're living so that we will not suffer in future circumstances. And so moralists believe if we do right and live right, we will not suffer that if I just do enough right things, do enough good things, suffering is something that I can avoid in my life. And probably the purest form of this ideology or perspective on suffering is the the Buddhist or Hindu view of karma. And and karma says something like, "What, what, what goes around comes around, or you get what you do. Everything in life is something earned, whether it's good or bad. You earned it based on your behavior, your achievements, the things that you've done. And now, is it only Buddhists and Hindus who operate with this perspective about suffering? Yes or no? No. Many Christians have a karmic view of suffering. Many Christians view suffering as something that, you know, if I, just, uh, if, if I just read my Bible enough and if I'm obedient enough and I follow God and I serve and I join the church and I serve in children's ministry sometimes, then God will bless me and I, I will not suffer in my life. Or conversely, if you're sick or struggling or, ha- or down and out or having a hard time, You must be disobedient in some way or your faith must be lacking in some way because surely God is punishing you for some deficiency in your belief in him. And so it's this karmic understanding of suffering or good and evil or right and wrong. Have you ever had someone say that to you? What did you do to cause this? This This is all on you. That's a karmic perspective on suffering. Now, The worst lies are the lies that are just sprinkled with tiny tiny bits of truth. And and so I do wanna say that generally speaking, if uh, you obey God, and if you live right, and if you do right, are you going to experience less consequences of suffering in your life, yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. The problem comes when we try to manipulate or control God with our behavior. That we, we think, if I just do enough good stuff, then God will owe me and so that I'll have a good life. That bad things shouldn't happen to good people, right? That Good people deserve good things. But the problem is, the experience of the world that we all have is that bad things do happen to good people. In fact, sometimes bad things happen because people are good. There's this example in the scriptures of Job, uh, Job 1.8, the Lord turned to Satan and said, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. It is exactly Job's righteousness that opened him up to a temptation of the enemy that God allowed in his life. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. In fact, one time, a long time ago, a really bad thing happened to the best person, and we'll talk more about that as the service progresses here this morning. Bad things happen to good people, and if we try to control God or our circumstances with our with our behavior, we will be crushed by suffering, uh, because one of two things will happen. If things start going well in your life or our lives, we'll, we'll become self-righteous about all the good stuff. You know what? If my life's pretty good, it must mean that I'm pretty good. It must mean that I'm doing things pretty well here, and we don't take anything as a blessing from God. Or if things are going poorly, we despair because, man, I, I just can't avoid, there's not enough good things I can do to avoid all the suffering in our lives. When we try to out-earn Suffering, we will fail every time. That's why it will crush us. Okay, number two, meaningless. So we have the moralist. Now we have the meaningless view on suffering. In this view, all pain and suffering comes by pure chance. And it's merely an unfortunate accident of, of the universe. There is no moral reason. There is no good or evil. There is no ultimate meaning or purpose in suffering. It's ultimately just random chance. And this is the view that is predominantly espoused by Western secular culture that views the world as only naturalistic the the only things that are real are the things that we can empirically prove or see uh, see hear feel taste touch everything else is 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 just random and so so if if someone walks outside and gets hit by a car well that's just a random chance of the universe and so there's this there, there is no moral uh, moral reason or, 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 or spiritual realm or God or Satan. Everything is purely the result of a chaotic physical world. New atheist Richard Dawkins, he says it like this. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you will not find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Makes you feel good about your suffering, doesn't it? So in this view, suffering is meaningless. It's meaningless. It's just random chance. You trip, you fall, you die, oops, right? In in this case, suffering is at best a distraction from happiness or the good life, or it's at worst a devastation from happiness or the good life. And so at all costs, we must avoid suffering because suffering can no way add to our lives. It's just a distraction from it. And so we try to outrun and outpace and outspend suffering. We we eat right, like kale. We eat kale. The thing that used to be the garnish on the side of sandwich trays. We eat that now, <laughs> right? Or we, we go to the gym regularly, or we go to the doctor. Or do, and all of these things are not bad. But to the extent that you s- start trying to control your environment, or control your circumstances in an attempt to avoid suffering, what you will find out very quickly is that suffering still comes. It doesn't matter how much you plan. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how for, how much forethought you have. You cannot suffer-proof your life. It's impossible. The world is too broken. And so this worldview, it, it actually strips us of the ability to properly face or endure suffering. We can't. If suffering is meaningless. then then when I suffer, I am just staring into a black hole and it's staring back at me saying, when you die, everything goes black and no one will remember you. So what, what, what hope do we have in pain? What hope do we have in death? And this worldview also strips us of the ability to grow through suffering instead of groaning through it like most of us often do. Oh, if I could just get through this thing. God doesn't want us to just get through pain. He wants us to grow through it. And if we think all suffering is meaningless, then we will never find meaning in the suffering that we experience. Amen? Okay. And so suffering as a distraction from the goal of happiness If that's our view, we will never find joy or reason or hope in pain. Next worldview, we're going to call it the meaningful worldview. You guys see this alliteration that's going on here? That's for you. Moralist, meaningless, meaningful, okay? And this is the Christian perspective on suffering, that suffering has meaning, suffering has purpose, suffering does something in us, it molds something in us, God is doing something in it. Uh, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Jesus went along and he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, that this this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Does Jesus sound like a moralist? No. Because there there is no sin that caused this person's blindness. A a moralist would say that sin caused the suffering. There is no karmic justice going on here. Does Jesus sound like a a secular Western scholar? No. No because he's saying even though this man was born blind and had to live his life blind and got to this point in his life blind, that there is purpose and meaning to his blindness, that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Suffering has meaning. Sometimes it's hard to see it when you're in it, but suffering has meaning. There's another example in the Old Testament. Joseph Kind of an arrogant, gifted, young child of Jacob. He gets this coat of many colors, starts bragging to his brothers. They throw him in a pit trying to kill him. Uh, They sell him into slavery. He gets falsely accused of rape. He's in prison. It's like over and over and over again, just bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And what we don't see until the very end of the story is that God was working all of the bad things for something good. Genesis fifty twenty. As for you, you meant evil against me. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. And hear me when I say this, because I don't want you to miss this. When you're in the prison, or you're being falsely accused, or, or, or you're experiencing the pain, it's really hard to remember this. But we have to remember there's an end to the story. And the end of the story is that God is taking all things and working them for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Now, my personal view, and I'm not speaking uh, ex officio on behalf of the church, my personal, you don't take a position on this actually, but my personal view is that God does not cause every painful, broken thing in the world that God is not meticulously uh, injuring or hurting us. Uh, And some people believe that, and I think that there's some valid reasons why they might believe that. Uh, God doesn't cause all the brokenness, but we certainly have to acknowledge that God allows it because God is powerful enough to stop it. And if God allows it, there must be a reason for it. And we can trust his reason because his character shows us that he is Good. And we'll know more about how we know that here in just a minute as we come into a close. And so suffering has meaning. God can and does work through pain and suffering. Now, you might be saying, well, There is senseless evil in the world. Uh, How could there possibly be a good reason for a tsunami in 2004 that kills 250,000 people in Indonesia? What possible good could come from that? Tim Keller addresses this in his book, A Reason for God. He says it like this, and I appreciate his perspective. He says, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within our own skepticism and enormous faith in our own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers for suffering, well, then there must not be one. Do you see how arrogant that is? That we put ourselves in a position to judge God and say, God, this isn't fair, or God, I can't understand. And we judge God based on our understanding of what is good or what should be good when we lack the perspective. He doesn't just sit on top of the mountain and see the whole valley. He sits outside of the universe and sees everything all at once and is working all things together. And we are down here as small creatures, time-bound, saying, I don't understand. And to that, God will tell you it's okay. Sometimes you don't understand. And so let's, let's look at the second point here quickly, the purposes of suffering. Uh, if, if we are taking this Christian perspective, we do think suffering has purpose. And there's one primary in the scriptures and one secondary that I'm going to give you here. The primary is maturity. God allows suffering in our lives to cultivate spiritual, emotional maturity in the lives of his people. He says it in several different places. Uh, James 1 is one of my favorites. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds a little bit different perspective sometimes than we take. For you know that the testing of your faith uh, produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so there is this testing or purification that happens through trials that makes us more mature or complete followers of Jesus. It's like a caterpillar in a cocoon becoming a butterfly. It is exactly the struggle of coming out of the cocoon that transforms a caterpillar into a butterfly. You, If you went in and tried to help the caterpillar by peeling back the cocoon, you would kill it. You would mutilate it. It needs the struggle in order to grow or transform. Or I had a friend who last year told me they visited the, the Napa Valley out in California and they went on one of those cool wine tours and, and they were going around drinking wine and uh, and they, they were given this wine that was particularly good. He said it was really excellent and they asked the guide. They said, th- th- he, he said, what's the deal with this wine? Why is it so good? He said, oh. That was 2016, and in 2016, we had a drought in the valley. And what happens during a drought is the vine on these, uh, on these grape vines, the, 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 the roots have to shoot down deeper into the ground to find water and find nutrients. And so it ends up making the plant dig deeper, go deeper, become more resilient long term. And the fruit is smaller during drought years, but it's more concentrated. That's why it's good wine. And it's the same with suffering. Suffering causes our roots to go deeper if we let it. I know just as many people who experience pain and suffering and their roots don't go deeper, they chop their roots off. People who experience pain and suffering, and their heart isn't softened by it, maturing in their faith, but their hearts become cold and hard, rejecting God's goodness in the middle of the pain. And so we have a choice in the matter, don't we? And so God uses suffering to develop maturity in the lives of his people. The next thing here's a reason we don't know. We don't know. Why does God allow all the things that happen to happen? It's a mystery. And as human beings, we really struggle with the idea of mystery. We don't like mystery because, because we, knowing things gives us a sense of control. If I, just, if I just know it, I can control it. If I can understand it, then I can break it down to you, and it gives me some sense of safety or control. It, 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 if I know why... If I know why this is happening, then maybe I can understand what what God is trying to accomplish in my life. And so we ask that question, why, why, why God? And that's what Job did in Job 38, and here's here's what God said back to him. He said, Job, put on your big boy pants, dress like a man. Other translation says, gird your loins, because I'm going to ask you a question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And Job's like, uh, because the answer is, he wasn't there, he doesn't know, and what God is basically saying to Job is that, listen, I don't have to give you a reason why, I don't have to explain myself to you, this is God's universe, it's not your universe, and as unfair as we might feel like that is sometimes, that is the reality, this is not my world, it's his he is God. I am not. He, it, it irritates the snot out of me. He never gives Job an answer. Never. Over and over. His idiot friends give him an answer. It's because you screwed up. But God never gives him an answer. God just says, trust me. Trust me. Ends up working out for Job in the long run. So when we ask this question, why, over and over again, it's like getting stuck in a roundabout. You ever been behind someone who doesn't know how to drive in a roundabout? It's like, oh, you just, what, please exit. Just Why? 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 We get stuck in these why cycles, and I'm not saying that why is a bad. I think we can ask God why. You can shake your fist at heaven. God gives us the freedom to do that. David did that. But if you get stuck in a why cycle, and you miss the more important question, which I think is what. What are you doing in me? What are you growing in me? What are you trying to redeem in me? So we get stuck in why, but God really wants us to think about what. What is he doing? What is he growing? Now, I want to give you a word of caution here because this is a very ministry-minded body. And, and as we minister to people who are suffering and struggling and pain, one of the worst things that we could possibly do is go up to a person who's just experienced some pain or heartache and say, you know what? God has a reason. God, All things work together for the good. It, 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 and we kind of have this flippant attitude about people suffering. And sometimes Christians can truth people in a way that points them away from the truth. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense to me, so if it makes sense to you, praise God. Okay. Sometimes we can say something that's true, but say it at the wrong time. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. Um, and so people more often need empathy before they need answers. They need us to step into their pain, step into their circumstances. Uh, they don't need us to, uh, to evaluate their situation or, or to try to understand with them what God is interpret their circumstances. They need us to connect before we instruct. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, by the way. Jesus stepped into our circumstances. Jesus connected before he instructed. He became like us. And that is the ultimate promise of suffering. You know, we know a few things. The the first, that suffering is temporary. That as Christians, we believe that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that one day He's going to reverse engineer history, flip it upside down on top of itself, and make every sad thing come untrue. We believe that. We believe that suffering is worth it. That passage we read at the beginning, for our light and momentary afflictions. They don't feel light and momentary sometimes, do they? But they are not worth comparing to the glory, the weight of glory that will be revealed. It outweighs them all. But ultimately, the the biggest promise, the most significant promise is we don't suffer alone. We have Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh, who stepped into our human experience, who stepped into our human pain, who in the ultimate act of empathy, he became like us in our pain to take our pain, to redeem it, and to save us from it. And so, how can a loving God allow so much suffering? I I don't know. I don't have all the answers. But I do know that we can trust a God who would die for us. We can trust a God who would take on pain for us. That is distinct from every other world religion, that tries to give you instructions for how to get to God. In Christianity, God came to us and he bore our grief and he carried our sorrow, yet we esteemed him not. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was the punishment that was on him that brought us peace and it's by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus is in the business of making every sad thing come untrue. Until then, he's saying, trust me. Trust me. Hold on to me. And as we end this morning, I want to give you an example of that kind of faith. I want to invite my friend Ruth Epstein to come on up front. Give Ruth a round of applause. Ruth, is on staff at New Heights Fayetteville. Her husband, Lee, is the directional leader or one of the co-directional leaders down there. And Ruth and Lee have a story of perseverance and faith in the face of suffering that I want you to list, list, listen. Take this in and hear God saying to you, hold on, hold on, hold on to me when there's nothing else to hold on to. Ruth?
1: My new heights family Uh, lee and i became part of new heights at the end of 2007 and you welcomed us with open arms and hearts and many of you including josh and katie were some of the amazing people that we immediately bonded with and we have dreamed with and prayed with and traveled with and ministered with together Uh, we are so thankful to call new heights our family And uh, Lee is not here with us this morning because he's teaching down at New Heights Fayetteville. But I brought one of my New Heights daughters with me, Alyssa Cox. And so Josh asked us to share about a story of our suffering that we've took about 10 years um, in our life. And uh, I'm going to try to do it in 10 minutes. So Uh, it's not a fun story to share but I think it's definitely a story of God's fingerprints of faithfulness in our lives. And so it was the summer of 1994, and a year earlier, Lee had graduated from seminary, and we had moved with our firstborn son, Levi, to East Texas for Lee to be a youth pastor. And on June 17th, Caleb Josiah was born weighing in at 12 pounds, two ounces. And we thought Levi was a whopper at nine pounds. But immediately the doctors knew that there was something wrong and they weren't sure what. I didn't get to see him in the operating room as they were trying to stabilize him. It was a small hospital outside of Dallas. And as they realized his medical frailty They knew they needed to get him to the Children's Hospital in Dallas as soon as possible. I still hadn't laid eyes on him as I heard the helicopter land on the roof to take him away. And they finally decided, if they wheel me out in my hospital bed, that I might be able to catch a glimpse of Caleb in his uh, his incubator as they wheeled him past into the elevator up to the roof. And that's what they did. And that was the first of many of his airvac flights. Since I had a C-section, I couldn't leave the hospital. Lee had to admit Caleb into the children's, so he drove to Dallas. And as days turned into weeks, we discovered, along with the medical professionals, of Caleb's compromised vascular and respiratory system. We do have a picture of him. They never were able to diagnose a syndrome for him, but he did get a brain shunt to keep water off his brain. They had, he had hope and heart surgery. He had a trach so he could receive oxygen better and a stomach button so he could receive nutrition daily. He was always connected to no less than eight tubes or wires at a time. And he spent his time either in ICU at two wonderful hospitals in Dallas or at home in Greenville, Texas, with round-the-clock nursing. In his lifetime, he never sat up by himself, he never held his own head up, and he never fed himself. And in 12 and a half months, his medical bills were $1.5 million. Our life was medicine several times a day, all types of therapy, CPR, waiting for the ambulance to arrive and then praying that our very old car would make it the 50 miles to Dallas to visit him during his hospital stays and this was our normal along with a 2 year old healthy boy and a growing youth ministry and so shortly after his first birthday I feel like God shared with me that he would not be with us much longer and so we treasured every moment with him levi would climb into his crib make sure he had enough toys we would tickle him and would see him laugh we couldn't hear him laugh because of his trach we would play with him as much as possible and he was an amazing soldier and he had been through so much and yet he rarely complained at being poked prodded receive medicine so even though we realized he might already be gone We called the ambulance one last time and rushed him to our local county hospital in the early morning hours of June 29th, 1995. And that started a long day of calling people, receiving people into our home, and doing something that you never dreamed possible, planning your own child's funeral. And God showed his kindness to us in such personal ways that day. Through his people. And his faithfulness is new every morning. And his grace is so sufficient. And we could sense him carrying us. And his funeral was packed. And with a loving church family... Nick, you, and at-home nurses 12 specialist doctors and a growing church ministry we were surrounded by many people that loved and adored Caleb and his body is buried in babyland in Greenville Texas under the caption your battle is over your victory has begun and we envision him doing things he could never do here on earth running playing laughing and singing with jesus and many other friends and we are so thankful to have been chosen to be this amazing child's parents for 12 and a half months and in 1996 noah joined our family and he was medically checked out before and after birth even with some of some of caleb's doctors and he was perfectly healthy but we started putting down Down a medical journal of kind of my family, and we realized that about a third of the boys born had heart issues, and Caleb had that, plus so much more. So in 1997, we moved to North Little Rock for Lee to be the directional leader of Cornerstone Bible Fellowship, and we were so excited and ready to start expanding our family again. We were able to get pregnant only to have a miscarriage in the fall of 1999. And in the spring of 2000, we suffered another loss with Lee's dad passing away. But believing that our family was not yet complete, we were hoping, we were excited to find out that we were expecting once again. And we couldn't wait till the child was 18 weeks old in my womb to find out whether it was a boy or girl. So we watched as the technician told us that it was a girl and that the doctor would be coming in to talk with us. And he explained that she had a condition known as anencephalia, and it was not compatible with life. Confused and trying to process this information, we asked if she was still alive. And he said, yes, she was, but she would be born without a brain. And his medical condition, his medical recommendation was to go downstairs and to schedule an abortion to terminate the pregnancy. Well, things were just moving too fast for Lee and I, and we told him that we would have to think about that. And later that night, I feel like God gave me the name Esther Grace for our daughter. And Leah and I talked about it, and we sent a letter out to our church body that explained That although others have taken the doctor's recommendation that we were legally allowed to enter life, we didn't believe that biblically or morally we could do that. And we did not want to live with any regret. God is the author of life, and only God can give and take life. It was not our decision to make. And so Esther grew inside me to a full term of 39 weeks. I had a precious friend that went with me to the funeral home And help me plan a funeral for our daughter that was not yet born. And people were shocked when we told them. And they thought, well, you've already suffered enough. They thought we had gone through our tragedy. And I realized that not all pregnancies are joyful. So I listened to a lot of praise music. And I tried to only think of praiseworthy things. And I read God's wonderful verses of comfort Like Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Psalm 62, my soul waits in silence for God. He is my salvation. He only is my rock, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Lamentations 3, his mercies are new every morning. And any time Esther Grace would move inside me, I would grab someone's arm, or hand, and I'd put them on my belly so someone else could enjoy her life. And then I called Focus on the Family, and I found a believing doctor in Little Rock that prayed with me each visit and rejoiced in her life. And on the morning of January 31, 2001, he pulled her out and he said, Welcome, Esther Grace. And she cried one sweet cry. And she laid silent for the next hour as we held her and took pictures. And Lee read Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And he lifted her up, and we dedicated her back to God. Well, the hospital hallways were lined with our church staff and elders and spouses and they were waiting for her arrival and they were praying for us. And my father, the proud grandfather, lovingly carried her to each one of them so they could meet her. I was put in a little room with a little symbol on it that showed workers that my baby was already in heaven and they didn't need to ask me any questions. I got released from the hospital just in time to get to her funeral. And her body is buried in Babyland in Sherwood, Arkansas, under the inscription, A Sparkle in the Eye of God. And we envision her happily playing with her siblings in heaven. So we took a deep breath. Our suffering was behind us, right? Well, believing that our family was not yet finished and that Caleb and Esther Grace were two very individual cases, and with our doctor's blessing, we tried to grow our family once again. And we became pregnant with Micah Paul. And though the sonogram revealed a suspicious spot near his heart, we prayed and we truly believed that he would be fine. So on May 31, 2002, Micah Paul was born and immediately taken to Arkansas Children's Hospital, where he stayed for about two weeks. We met with the doctors, and they believed he would need surgery, but he needed to grow first. And we took him home with strict orders not to go out in public, not even church, no germs. And he was such a joy. He loved to laugh, and we loved having three boys in our home. Our family felt complete. And Levi, who was 10, and Noah, who was 6, loved being big brothers. And he grew through that summer, but he could never make it over 12 pounds. His heart was working harder and harder. And the doctors thought it was time for surgery. So in early November, he went into surgery. And though he made it out of the operating room, he never made it home. And on November 7th, With many of his systems starting to fail, the heart-lung machine was turned off, and I held him as he went to play with Jesus and his other siblings. And his body is buried close to Esther Grace in babyland under the inscription, A Joy to Us, Now Safely Home. It is so strange when we meet people for the first time And they ask us, how many children do you have? Well, we have more children in heaven than here. So I usually just say we have two boys. Too much awkwardness, too much honesty, definitely too much information. But my heart is split. I love my boys, but I have three children in heaven, four, including my miscarriage. I like to listen to Johnny Erickson Tata on her podcast, Johnny and Friends. After a diving accident when she was a teen, she has suffered more than 50 years in a wheelchair. And she's had several bouts of cancer. But she has used her personal understanding of suffering to bring help and hope to many people, especially disabilities around the world. She says, we are God's masterpiece of mercy. I really like that. Because God has allowed these situations in our life, we can understand when other people have suffered great loss. We, we may have a narrow view of suffering, but God has a wide angle view of suffering. His ways are not our ways. We can't see why he is allowing this. But just like Jesus in the garden when he submitted himself to God's will, I want to say yes. whatever he calls me to because he's worth it he's so worth it i want to trust him with my life a few years ago i could sense that our age and stage of life was changing and i wanted to be ready for whatever god had for us in our next stage so i scheduled a discernment prayer time at the joshua center and it went wonderful but a few weeks later one of the girls came by my office unexpectedly she started asking about our children. She didn't know all the details, so I shared this story with her. And she then proceeded to share a dream that she'd had about me. She'd see me in heaven with two little boys and two little girls running up. And we were all so excited to see each other. It was a grand reunion. So based on her dream, I named her other daughter, Lily Hope. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But when he appears, we shall be like him and see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And I can't wait for that grand reunion one day.
0: I just want you to feel it for a second. That we do not suffer as those who have no hope. Like the lyrics of one song says that when the night is holding on to us, God is holding on. Or like Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. At the end of Job's story, or near the beginning, he, he makes this declaration to God and it's very similar to what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. If it's possible, take this cup from me, but I'm going to follow you. And Job says, Though you slay me, I'm going to put hope in you. Let's stand. I don't know what pain you are experiencing, I don't know what suffering is is relevant in your life at this moment, but if you want to put your trust in this Jesus who can hold on to you, I just want to ask you to just hold your palms up to heaven as I pray. Let's ask him to minister to us, to hold on to us, and then we'll sing. Lord, sometimes the world is too much. And we look forward to the day that you will come and make all things new. And we pray, Father, that you would give us enduring hearts, that our hearts would not become hard by seasons of drought, but our roots would go deeper. And that though sometimes it feels like you're slaying us, God, that we would trust you because you're good. And we can trust a God who would die for us, who would suffer for us, who would become like us. And so we praise and honor the name of Jesus. Minister to us now in this room in Jesus' name. Amen.